Chapter 14, Section 5 of Capital, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Capital, A Critical Analysis of Capitalist Production, Volume 1, by Karl Marx. Translated from the third German edition by Samuel Moore and Edward Aveling, and edited by Frederick Engels. Part 4. Chapter 14. Division of Labor and Manufacture. Section 5. The Capitalistic Character of Manufacture. An increased number of laborers under the control of one capitalist is the natural starting point, as well of cooperation generally, as of manufacture in particular. But the division of labor in manufacture makes this increase in the number of workmen a technical necessity. The minimum number that any given capitalist is bound to employ is here prescribed by the previously established division of labor. On the one hand, the advantages of further division are obtainable only by adding to the number of workmen, and this can be done only by adding multiples of the various detail groups. But an increase in the variable component of the capital employed necessitates an increase in its constant component too, in the workshops, implements, etc., and in particular in the raw material, the call for which grows quicker than the number of workmen. The quantity of it consumed in a given time by a given amount of labor increases in the same ratio as does the productive power of that labor in consequence of its division. Hence, it is a law based on the very nature of manufacture that the minimum amount of capital, which is bound to be in the hands of each capitalist, must keep increasing. In other words, that the transformation into capital of the social means of production and subsistence must keep extending. Footnote 39. Quote, it is not sufficient that the capital, end quote, paren, the writer should have said the necessary means of subsistence and of production, close paren, Quote, required for the subdivision of handicrafts should be in readiness in the society. It must also be accumulated in the hands of the employers in sufficiently large quantities to enable them to conduct their operations on a large scale. The more the division increases, the more does the constant employment of a given number of laborers require a greater outlay of capital in tools, raw materials, etc. Storch, Cours d'économie politique, Paris edition, volume 1, pages 250-251. Quote, La concentration des instruments de production et la division du travail sont aussi inséparables l'une de l'autre que le sont dans le régime politique la concentration des pouvoirs publics et la division des intérêts privés. End of quote. The concentration of the instruments of production and the division of labor are as inseparable one from the other as are in the political sphere the concentration of public powers and the division of private interests. Karl Marx, location cited, page 134, end of footnote 39. In manufacture, as well as in simple cooperation, the collective working organism is a form of existence of capital. The mechanism that is made up of numerous individual detail laborers belongs to the capitalist. Hence the productive power resulting from a combination of laborers appears to be the productive power of capital. Manufacture proper not only subjects the previously independent workmen to the discipline and command of capital, but in addition creates a hierarchic gradation of the workmen themselves. While simple cooperation leaves the mode of working by the individual for the most part unchanged, manufacture thoroughly revolutionizes it and seizes labor power by its very roots. 
it converts the laborer into a crippled monstrosity by forcing his detailed dexterity at the expense of a world of productive capabilities and instincts just as in the states of la plata they butcher a whole beast for the sake of his hide or his tallow not only is the detail work distributed to the different individuals but the individual himself is made the automatic motor of a fractional operation and the absurd fable of meninius agrippa which makes man a mere fragment of his own body becomes realized footnote forty dougal stewart calls manufacturing laborers quote, living automatons employed in the details of the work end of quote location cited page three eighteen end of footnote forty Footnote 41. In corals, each individual is in fact the stomach of the whole group, but it supplies the group with nourishment, instead of, like the Roman patrician, withdrawing it. End of footnote 41. If at first the workman sells his labor power to capital because the material means of producing a commodity fail him, now his very labor power refuses its services unless it has been sold to capital. Its functions can be exercised only in an environment that exists in the workshop of the capitalist after the sale. By nature unfitted to make anything independently, the manufacturing laborer develops productive activity as a mere appendage of the capitalist's workshop. Footnote 42. Quote, L'ouvrier qui porte dans ses bras tout un métier peut aller partout exercer son industrie et trouver des moyens de subsister. L'autre the manufacturing laborer, n'est qu'un accessoire qui, séparé de ses confrères, n'a plus ni capacité ni indépendance et qui se trouve forcé d'accepter la loi qu'on juge à propos de lui imposer. End of quote. The worker who is the master of a whole craft can work and find the means of subsistence anywhere. The other, the manufacturing laborer, is only an appendage who, when he is separated from his fellows, possesses neither capability nor independence and finds himself forced to accept any law it is thought fit to impose. Storch, location cited, Petersburg edition, 1815, volume 1, page 204, end of footnote 42. As the chosen people bore in their features the sign manual of Jehovah, so division of labor brands the manufacturing workman as the property of capital. The knowledge, the judgment, and the will, which, though in ever so small a degree, are practiced by the independent peasant or handicraftsman, in the same way as the savage makes the whole art of war consist in the exercise of his personal cunning, these faculties are now required only for the workshop as a whole. Intelligence and production expands in one direction because it vanishes in many others. What is lost by the detail laborers is concentrated in the capital that employs them. Footnote 43. A. Ferguson, location cited, page 281, quote, The former may have gained what the other has lost, end of quote. End of footnote 43. It is a result of the division of labor in manufactures that the laborer is brought face to face with the intellectual potencies of the material process of production as the property of another and as a ruling power. This separation begins in simple cooperation, where the capitalist represents to the single workman the oneness and the will of the associated labor. It is developed in manufacture which cuts down the laborer into a detail laborer. It is completed in modern industry, which makes science a productive force distinct from labor and presses it into the service of capital. Footnote 44. 
Quote, the man of knowledge and the productive laborer come to be widely divided from each other. And knowledge, instead of remaining the handmaid of labor in the hand of the laborer to increase his productive powers, has almost everywhere arrayed itself against labor, systematically deluding and leading them, the laborers, astray, in order to render their muscular powers entirely mechanical and obedient. End of quote. W. Thompson, An Inquiry into the Principles of the Distribution of Wealth, London, 1824, page 274. End of footnote 44. In manufacture, in order to make the collective laborer and through him capital rich in social productive power, each laborer must be made poor in individual productive powers. Quote, Ignorance is the mother of industry as well as of superstition. Reflection and fancy are subject to error, but a habit of moving the hand or the foot is independent of either. Manufacturers, accordingly, prosper most where the mind is least consulted, and where the workshop may be considered as an engine, the parts of which are men. End of quote. Footnote 45. A. Ferguson, location cited, page 280. End of footnote 45. As a matter of fact, some few manufacturers in the middle of the 18th century preferred for certain operations that were trade secrets to employ half-idiotic persons. Footnote 46. J.D. Tuckett, A History of the Past and Present State of the Laboring Population, London, 1846. End of footnote 46. Quote, The understandings of the greater part of men, says Adam Smith, are necessarily formed by their ordinary employments. The man whose whole life is spent in performing a few simple operations has no occasion to exert his understanding. He generally becomes as stupid and ignorant as it is possible for a human creature to become. End of quote. After describing the stupidity of the detailed laborer, he goes on, quote, The uniformity of his stationary life naturally corrupts the courage of his mind. It corrupts even the activity of his body, and renders him incapable of exerting his strength with vigor and perseverance in any other employments than that to which he has been bred. His dexterity at his own particular trade seems in this manner to be acquired at the expense of his intellectual, social, and martial virtues. But in every improved and civilized society, this is the state into which the laboring poor, that is, the great body of the people, must necessarily fall. End of quote. Footnote 47. Adam Smith, Wealth of Nations, Book 5, Chapter 1, Article 2. Being a pupil of A. Ferguson, who showed the disadvantageous effects of division of labor, Adam Smith was perfectly clear on this point. In the introduction to his work, where he ex-professo praises division of labor, he indicates only in a cursory manner that it is the source of social inequalities. It is not till the fifth book on the revenue of the state that he reproduces Ferguson. In my Misère de la Philosophie, I have sufficiently explained the historical connection between Ferguson, A. Smith, Lamonte, and Say, as regards their criticisms of division of labor, and have shown for the first time that division of labor, as practiced in manufactures, is a specific form of the capitalist mode of production. End of footnote 47. For preventing the complete deterioration of the great mass of the people by division of labor, a. Smith recommends education of the people by the state, but prudently, and in homeopathic doses. G. Garnier, his French translator and commentator, who under the First French Empire quite naturally developed into a senator, quite as naturally opposes him on this point. Education of the masses, he urges, violates the first law of the division of labor, and with it, quote, our whole social system would be proscribed. 
Like all other division of labor, he says, that between hand labor and head labor is more pronounced and decided in proportion as society, he rightly uses this word for capital landed property in their state, becomes richer. End quote. Footnote 48. Ferguson had already said, location cited, page 281, quote, and thinking itself in this age of separations may become a peculiar craft. End of quote. End of footnote 48. Quote, this division of labor, like every other, is an effect of past and a cause of future progress. Ought the government then to work in opposition to this division of labor and to hinder its natural course? Ought it to expend a part of the public money in the attempt to confound and blend together two classes of labor which are striving after division and separation? End of quote. Footnote 49, G. Garnier, Volume 5 of his translation of Adam Smith, pages 4 and 5. End of footnote 49. Some crippling of body and mind is inseparable even from division of labor and society as a whole. Since, however, manufacture carries this social separation of branches of labor much further, and also by its peculiar division, a taxi individual at the very roots of his life, it is the first to afford the materials for, and to give a start to, industrial pathology. Footnote 50. Ramazzini, professor of practical medicine at Padua, published in 1713 his work De Morbis Artificum, which was translated into French 1781, reprinted 1841 in the Encyclopédie des Sciences Médicales, septième dix auteurs classiques. The period of modern mechanical industry has, of course, very much enlarged his catalogue of labor's diseases. See Hygiène physique et morale de l'ouvrier dans les grandes villes en général et dans la ville de Lyon en particulier, par le docteur A. L. Fonteray, Paris, 1858, and Die Krankheiten, welche verschiedenen Ständen, Altern und Geschlechtern eigentümlich sind, six volumes, Ulm, 1860, and others. In 1854, the Society of Arts appointed a commission of inquiry into industrial pathology. The list of documents collected by this commission is to be seen in the catalogue of the Twickenham Economic Museum. Very important are the official reports on public health. See also Edward Reich, M.D., Über die Entartung des Menschen, Erlangen, 1868. End of footnote 50. Quote, to subdivide a man is to execute him if he deserves the sentence, to assassinate him if he does not. The subdivision of labor is the assassination of a people. End of quote. Footnote 51. The Urquhart, Familiar Words, London, 1855, page 119. Hegel held very heretical views on division of labor. In his Rechtsphilosophie, he says, quote, by well-educated men, we understand in the first instance those who can do everything that others do. End of quote. End of footnote 51. Cooperation based on division of labor, in other words manufacture, commences as a spontaneous formation. So soon as it attains some consistence and extension, it becomes a recognized methodical and systematic form of capitalist production. History shows how the division of labor peculiar to manufacture, strictly so-called, acquires the best adapted form at first by experience, as it were behind the backs of the actors, and then, like the guild handicrafts, strives to hold fast to that form when once found, and here and there succeeds in keeping it for centuries. Any alteration in this form except in trivial matters is solely owing to a revolution in the instruments of labor.
modern manufacture, wherever it arises, I do not here allude to modern industry based on machinery, either finds the disjecta membra poetae ready to hand and only waiting to be collected together, as is the case in the manufacture of clothes in large towns, or it can easily apply the principle of division simply by exclusively assigning the various operations of a handicraft, such as bookbinding, to particular men. In such cases, a week's experience is enough to determine the proportion between the numbers of the hands necessary for the various functions. Footnote 52. The simple belief in the inventive genius exercised a priori by the individual capitalist in division of labor exists nowadays only among German professors of the stamp of Herr Rosche, who, to recompense the capitalist from whose Jovian head division of labor sprang ready formed, dedicates to him, quote, various wages, end of quote, diverse Arbeitslöhner. The more or less extensive application of division of labor depends on length of purse, not on greatness of genius. End of footnote 52. By decomposition of handicrafts, by specialization of the instruments of labor, by the formation of detail laborers, and by grouping and combining the latter into a single mechanism, division of labor and manufacture creates a qualitative gradation and a quantitative proportion in the social process of production. It consequently creates a definite organization of the labor of society, and thereby develops at the same time new productive forces in the society. In a specific capitalist form, and under the given conditions it could take no other form than a capitalistic one, manufacture is but a particular method of begetting relative surplus value, or of augmenting at the expense of the laborer the self-expansion of capital, usually called social wealth, quote, wealth of nations, end quote, etc., it increases the social productive power of labor, not only for the benefit of the capitalist instead of for that of the laborer, but it does this by crippling the individual laborers. It creates new conditions for the lordship of capital over labor. If, therefore, on the one hand it presents itself historically as a progress and as a necessary phase in the economic development of society, on the other hand it is a refined and civilized method of exploitation. Political economy, which, as an independent science, first sprang into being during the period of manufacture, views the social division of labor only from the standpoint of manufacture, and sees in it only the means of producing more commodities with a given quantity of labor, and consequently of cheapening commodities and hurrying on the accumulation of capital. Footnote 53. The older writers like Petty and the anonymous author of Advantages of the East India Trade bring out the capitalist character of division of labor as applied in manufacture more than Adam Smith does. End of footnote 53. In most striking contrast with this accentuation of quantity and exchange value is the attitude of the writers of classical antiquity who hold exclusively by quality and use value. Footnote 54. Amongst the moderns may be excerpted a few writers of the 18th century, like Beccaria and James Harris, who with regard to division of labor almost entirely follow the ancient. Thus Beccaria, quote, Ciascuna prova quell'esperienza che applicando la mano e l'ingegno sempre allo stesso genere di opere e di prodotte e di più facili, più abbondanti e migliori ne tracca risultati di quello che si ciascuno isolatamente le cose tutte a se necessarie soltanto facesse, dividendosi in tal maniera per la comune e privata utilità gli uomini in varie classi e condizioni. End of quote. 
Everyone knows from experience that if the hands and the intelligence are always applied to the same kind of work and the same products, these will be produced more easily in greater abundance and in higher quality than if each individual makes for himself all the things he needs. In this way, men are divided up into various classes and conditions to their own advantage and to that of the commodity. Cesare Beccaria, Elementi di Economia Publica, Edizione Custodi, Parte Moderna, Volume 11, page 29. James Harris, afterward Earl of Malmesbury, celebrated for the diaries of his embassy at St. Petersburg, says in a note to his Dialogue Concerning Happiness, London 1741, reprinted afterwards in Three Treatises, 3rd edition, London 1772, quote, The whole argument to prove society natural, i.e. by division of employments, is taken from the second book of Plato's Republic, end of quote, End of footnote 54. In consequence of the separation of the social branches of production, commodities are better made, the various bents and talents of men select a suitable field, and without some restraint, no important results can be obtained anywhere. Footnote 55. Thus in the Odyssey, 14 to 28, Alosgar taloisin aner epiterpetai ergois. For different men take joy in different works, and Archilochus and Sexus Empiricus, Alos alo ep ergo cardin ianetai. Men differ as to things cheer their hearts. End of footnote 55. Footnote 56. Pol epistato erga xaxos depistato panta. He could do many works, but all of them badly. Homer. Every Athenian considered himself superior as a producer of commodities to a Spartan. For the latter in time of war had men enough at his disposal, but could not command money, as Thucydides makes Pericles say in the speech inciting the Athenians to the Peloponnesian War. Samasi te etoi moteroi oi autonergoi ton anthropon e kremasi polemein. People producing for their own consumption will rather let war have their bodies than their money. Thucydides 1, 1, C41. Nevertheless, even with regard to material production, autarkia or self-sufficiency, as opposed to division of labor, remained their ideal. Paron garto oi partuton kaito autores. For with the latter there is well-being, but with the former there is independence. It should be mentioned here that at the date of the fall of the thirty tyrants, there were still not five thousand Athenians without landed property. End of footnote 56. Hence, both product and producer are improved by division of labor. If the growth of the quantity produced is occasionally mentioned, this is only done with reference to the greater abundance of use values. There is not a word alluding to exchange value or to the cheapening of commodities. This aspect, from the standpoint of use value alone, is taken as well by Plato, who treats division of labor as the foundation on which the division of society into classes is based, as by Xenophon, who, with characteristic bourgeois instinct, approaches more nearly to division of labor within the workshop. Footnote 57. With Plato, division of labor within the community is a development from the multifarious requirements and the limited capacities of individuals. The main point with him is that the laborer must adapt himself to the work, not the work to the laborer, which latter is unavoidable if he carries on several trades at once, thus making one or the other of them subordinate. Ugar etelai to pratomenon ten to platonios solen perimenein, 
alanake ton pratonta to pratomeno epakoluthein meen paregu mere. Anake, ek de tutan pleo te casta gignetai, kai kalion kai raon, otan es en kai ofisin, kai en kairo, sholen ton alon agon prate. For the workman must wait upon the work. It will not wait upon his leisure and allow itself to be done in a spare moment. Yes, he must. So the conclusion is that more will be produced of everything and the work will be more easily and better done when every man is set free from all other occupations to do at the right time the one thing for which he is naturally fitted. Republic 1-2, Edition Bader, Aurelian Company. So in Thucydides' location cited, C-142, quote, Seafaring is an art like any other, and cannot, as circumstances require, be carried on as a subsidiary occupation. Nay, other subsidiary occupations cannot be carried on alongside of this one. End of quote. If the work, says Plato, has to wait for the laborer, the critical point in the process is missed, and the article is spoiled. Ergou chiron diolutai. If someone lets slip. The same platonic ideas found recurring in the protest of the English bleachers against the clause in the Factory Act that provides fixed meal times for all operatives. Their business cannot wait the convenience of the workmen, for, quote, in the various operations of singeing, washing, bleaching, mangling, calendaring, and dyeing, none of them can be stopped at a given moment without risk of damage. To enforce the same dinner hour for all the workpeople might occasionally subject valuable goods to the risk of danger by incomplete operations. End of quote. Le platonisme, où va-t-il se nicher? Where will Platonism be found next? End of footnote 57. Footnote 58. Xenophon says, It is not only an honor to receive food from the table of the king of Persia, but such food is much more tasty than other food. Quote, and there is nothing wonderful in this, for as the other arts are brought to special perfection in the great towns, so the royal food is prepared in a special way. For in the small towns the same man makes bedsteads, doors, plows, and tables. Often, too, he builds houses into the bargain, and is quite content if he finds custom sufficient for his sustenance. It is altogether impossible for a man who does so many things to do them all well. But in the great towns, where each can find many buyers, one trade is sufficient to maintain the man who carries it on. Nay, there is often not even need of one complete trade, but one man makes shoes for men, another for women. Here and there one man gets a living by sewing, another by cutting out shoes. One does nothing but cut out clothes, another nothing but sew the pieces together. It follows necessarily, then, that he who does the simplest kind of work undoubtedly does it better than anyone else, so it is with the art of cooking. End of quote. Xenophon, Syrop, 1, 8, C2. Xenophon here lays stress exclusively upon the excellence to be attained in use value, although he well knows that the gradations of the division of labor depend on the extent of the market. End of footnote 58. Plato's Republic, insofar as division of labor is treated in it, as the formative principle of the state, is merely the Athenian idealization of the Egyptian system of castes, Egypt having served as the model of an industrial country to many of his contemporaries also, amongst others to Isocrates, and it continued to have this importance to the Greeks of the Roman Empire. Footnote 59. 
he, Busiris, divided them all into special castes, commanded that the same individuals should always carry on the same trade, for he knew that they who change their occupations become skilled in none, but that those who constantly stick to one occupation bring it to the highest perfection. In truth, we shall also find that in relation to the arts and handicrafts, they have outstripped their rivals more than a master does a bungler and the contrivances for maintaining the monarchy and the other institutions of their state are so admirable that the most celebrated philosophers who treat of this subject praise the constitution of the Egyptian state above all others. Isocrates, Bucyrus, chapter 8, end of footnote 59. Footnote 60. See Diodorus Siculus, end of footnote 60. During the manufacturing period proper, i.e. the period during which manufacture is the predominant form taken by capitalist production, many obstacles are opposed to the full development of the peculiar tendencies of manufacture. Although manufacture creates, as we have already seen, a simple separation of the laborers into skilled and unskilled, simultaneously with their hierarchic arrangement in classes, yet the number of the unskilled laborers, owing to the preponderating influence of the skilled, remains very limited. Although it adapts the detail operations to the various degrees of maturity, strength, and development of the living instruments of labor, thus conducing to exploitation of women and children, yet this tendency as a whole is wrecked on the habits and the resistance of the male laborers. Although the splitting up of handicrafts lowers the cost of forming the workman, and thereby lowers his value, yet for the more difficult detailed work a longer apprenticeship is necessary, and even where it would be superfluous is jealously insisted upon by the workmen. In England, for instance, we find the laws of apprenticeship with their seven years probation in full force down to the end of the manufacturing period, and they are not thrown on one side till the advent of modern industry. Since handicraft skill is the foundation of manufacture, and since the mechanism of manufacture as a whole possesses no framework apart from the laborers themselves, capital is constantly compelled to wrestle with the insubordination of the workmen. Quote, by the infirmity of human nature, end quote, says friend Ure, quote, it happens that the more skillful the workman, the more self-willed and intractable he is apt to become, and of course the less fit a component of a mechanical system in which he may do great damage to the whole. End of quote. Footnote 61, Ure, location cited, page 20, end of footnote 61. Hence, throughout the whole manufacturing period, there runs the complaint of want of discipline among the workmen. Footnote 62. This is more the case in England than in France, and more in France than in Holland. End of footnote 62. And had we not the testimony of contemporary writers, the simple facts that during the period between the 16th century and the epoch of modern industry, capital failed to become the master of the whole disposable working time of the manufacturing laborers, that manufacturers are short-lived and change their locality from one country to another with the emigrating or immigrating workmen, these facts would speak volumes. Quote, Order must in one way or another be established, end of quote, exclaims in 1770 the oft-cited author of the Essay on Trade and Commerce. Order, re-echoes Dr. Andrew Ewer 66 years later, order was wanting in manufacture based on, quote, the scholastic dogma of division of labor, end of quote, end quote, Arkwright created order, end of quote. 
At the same time, manufacture was unable either to seize upon the production of society to its full extent or to revolutionize that production to its very core. It towered up as an economic work of art on the broad foundation of the town handicrafts and of the rural domestic industries. At a given stage in its development, the narrow technical basis on which manufacture rested came into conflict with requirements of production that were created by manufacture itself. One of its most finished creations was the workshop for the production of the instruments of labor themselves, including especially the complicated mechanical apparatus then already employed. A machine factory, says Ewer, quote, displayed the division of labor in manifold gradations, the file, the drill, the lathe, having each its different workmen in the order of skill. End of quote, page 21. This workshop, the product of the division of labor and manufacture, produced in its turn machines. It is they that sweep away the handicraftsman's work as the regulating principle of social production. Thus, on the one hand, the technical reason for the lifelong annexation of the workman to a detail function is removed. On the other hand, the fetters that this same principle laid on the dominion of capital fall away. End of Part 4, Chapter 14, Section 5